Well, we're going to be jumping back into Romans today. Um, and we're looking at Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 14 through 25. When I was 12 years old, I um, had this experience that was a life-changing experience. Um, I, when I was 11, sang for the first time in front of people. Now, anyone who knows any of my story, I grew up in a very broken home. Um, my mom and my dad divorced when I was one. Um, my mom and my, myself and my little brother, Jared, a uh, single mom who worked multiple jobs until she married a second time uh, when I was in going into first grade married to a very unhealthy man who was also unfaithful and not very nice uh, in Rainier, Oregon. We lived under the Lewis and Clark Bridge and she was married to him until the end of my second grade year uh, until she found out he was having an affair and we ended up again, uh, two brothers and a single mom who was working two to three jobs to support us bouncing back and forth between Longview and Rainier like a yo-yo, moving, I don't even know the amount of times I moved, but I had to change schools every single year of grade school. Um, now, that creates a deep abiding insecurity in a young kid, um, not having any sort of male role model. I loved dancing and singing, which doesn't make for just real strong popularity in small towns like Longview or Rainier. Um, until breakdancing came out. That's another story for another time. Uh, but I, I, I discovered something when my mom got radically saved in third grade, and that was I could sing. And I remember my mom and I, my mom asked me to sing a duet with her um, at church, which was to an accompaniment tape. And we were singing that, you know, lovely 1985 hit, Friends, by Michael W. Smith, affectionately known as Smitty by his more serious fans. Um, a man who I had the privilege of seeing on acid in 1989, which was another crazy story for another time, uh, which just shows why I so desperately need Jesus. Uh, but here's the thing. I sing with my mom and this man sees us and his son dies in this horrible car accident. He's a senior in high school. He's like the all-star football player. Uh, and, and the dad was so moved by my mom and I singing that he asked us to sing that song at the funeral. Now, I'd never been confronted with death. I'd never been to a funeral before. So I wasn't even really, you know, all I knew is that I just had gotten a really awesome perm because I wanted to look like Prince and I ended up looking like Kirk Cameron. Um, and, and I was super nervous because sitting next to me in the front row, was what I like to refer to as a bevy of beauties drawn right out of a John Hughes film, just a whole row of beautiful high school girl cheerleaders. And my little 12-year-old heart was like, yes. And I wasn't even thinking about the casket in front on the stage. In fact, it wasn't even computing with me what I was even doing. All I know is that when that accompaniment tape started and I took the lead with my high tenor voice, that prepubescent ability to sing really, really high. Uh, and I began to sing, that whole row of girls just started weeping. And I thought to myself, this is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> this is what I want to do with my life. Now, 
I tell you that tasteless story for a very specific reason. Because we can find grace in very graceless moments. Now, it's true, it's a little disturbing that you have a young 12-year-old boy with a perm. That's disturbing enough, all on its own. Singing Michael W. Smith, standing in front of a casket while young women are crying for their friend who's passed. But in actuality, what that did for me in that moment was that it was the moment in which God gave me a vision for something that I never had before. Because it was that moment that actually defined my desire to become a singer. And it was that moment that led me to pursuing music in my 20s. And then when I came to faith um, at 27 years old, so many years later, I could go all the way back to that very specific moment of God giving a little broken, insecure, anxiety-filled kid a moment of respite from what was a pretty difficult childhood. And also in that moment, God gave a row of girls who were deeply grieved by their loss of their friend a song that would give them the space to mourn and to grieve. And so as tasteless as it may seem to think that I, I thought that I was the cause of these girls crying, I, in actuality, God has this unbelievable ability to work through mixture. And as we look at this text today, Paul is going to be talking about that reality, that we are a combination as born again, regenerate men and women, if indeed you have been born again. It says, if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. But the fact is, is that we know that the old is still all around us and even within us. And there's this new relationship where now we have a civil war going on within us because there is the spirit who comes to dwell within us. And at the same time, the flesh, although it's been crucified with Christ, has this uncanny ability to continually resurrect itself. And that war creates a lot of graceless moments. But I promise you, God has the ability to bring beauty out of the ugliness. It's the powerful picture of the Cimmerillion when the creator God, written by J.R. Token about the creation of Middle Earth, when the, when the creator God utilizes these spiritual beings to sing into existence creation. And as they begin to sing into existence creation, one of the created beings becomes um, overly aware of himself, thinking that he should be able to create apart from the very one who gave him life. And in doing so, immediately gives a dissonant note into the creation, drawing other created beings that, uh, into that same internal prideful mindset. Before long, the whole created order is on the brink of completely unhinging. Chaos is about to pursue when the creator God sings a new movement, weaving into the song the notes, the dissonant notes, and overriding it and even utilizing it to create beauty. And I think that Token beautifully understood God's sovereignty isn't the immovable facts of existence, but it's his freedom to actually accomplish his purposes by utilizing broken vessels like you and I to bring about good. That he can take the most graceless moments in our lives and they can be transformed into powerful witnesses to his gospel. 
In Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 17, Paul gives us this picture of the conflict that we experience as believers, and it is the fact that life is indeed mixture. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual. Remember, we just spent the whole time, the most dangerous place, the law for us represents religion, for we, are, we, we long for law, we long for um, whatever that law may be, even in the age of relativism, we still create law for ourselves, even though it might be our own law. Just don't tell me what law I'm supposed to believe as long as I have the right to define it. But we still create for ourselves ways of bringing meaning into our existence. We still create things to, for ourselves to rationalize the, the broken realities of our existence. And in Paul, it was very clear that it is a very dangerous thing to put one's faith in the law for the law, he said, is good, but it cannot produce what it demands. And he said that this is why we need the law of grace. But here he shows us, he goes, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. In other words, the law is perfect. It creates a standard that I cannot keep because he's what? Sold, as he says, under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. I think that that should be a, something that if you're gonna get a tattoo, tattoo that on your forehead. I do not understand my own actions. I wish that if the whole world would just put that on their forehead, um, it would just remind us that you don't know what you think you know. You don't understand all that there is to understand. Our, our ability to see into things is extremely limited. And this kind of shows one of the deepest flaws of a city like Portland that is so self-righteous in its ways. And yet all of the self-righteousness of our city as our city sits in piles of garbage and the violence continues to escalate, all of our progressiveness has led us where? And it shows us that the ideologies, whether it's from the left or the right, cannot save us because the fundamental problem is this. We don't know who we are because of a three-letter word. It's called sin. For I do not do what I want. Now, Paul is speaking in the present tense, and he's not talking about someone else. There is a lot of debate around this text that Paul is using this as kind of a hyperbolic metaphor of what life looks like apart from the gospel, or maybe he's talking about his life before Jesus. But I would argue if we were to take Paul's words seriously, at the end of his life with First Timothy, in, in, um, Timothy, he says, Christ Jesus came into this world to die for sinners of whom I, what? Am chief, not I was chief. He says, I am chief, because I would argue that the closer you get to Jesus, the more fundamentally aware you become of how flawed you are, how broken you are. That's why Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look you take into your own heart, take 10 looks to Jesus. The gospel should push us out of ourselves. The world, as it's infiltrated the church, is continually calling us to look inward and to find peace inward and to focus in on our own personal growth so that we can overcome the dilemmas of our existence by climbing our personal ladders to our better, our better understanding of ourselves. But it's nonsense. The whole self-help movement of our current age is garbage. That was just a blanket statement because I know everything there is to know about it. I just, I just denied my own, my own statement. Um, so here we have this. He says, 
For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I do, do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. He's saying, the things that I keep finding myself doing, I know I shouldn't be doing because the law has been a revelation that I am not measuring up to God's golden standard, essentially. I can't seem to accomplish what the law demands. This is problematic. And he says, I know it's not what I want to do because I, I'm actually familiar with the law. And, and this is a, an important distinction that Paul here is saying, I know what it's like to be a religious man. And a religious man is the most, a religious person, a religious man, woman is the most dangerous kind of person because they are satisfying the deepest longing of the human heart, which is to find ultimate meaning, purpose, ritual. Um, but they're doing it through religious practices to ease the gnawing voice of conscience. But Paul's saying, no, 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 that the law, religion isn't going to save you. Law is not going to save you because you can't do it. And she says, I don't, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Now Paul is giving us the distinction of a born again believer that he sees this reality. It's the words of Martin Luther. Jesus saved me from sin. Why didn't he save me from sinning? What we have here is a confession. And this confession is actually the key to beginning to move toward real sanctification. That sin has been dealt with once and for all through the saving work of Jesus. The cross of Calvary, it says that he is the high priest he is the final priest, the priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the once and for all sacrifice, unlike the sacrificial bulls that had to continually be killed to satisfy the guilt of sin. Jesus becomes the once and for all sacrifice. He is the representative man of a new humanity. He is both the judge and the judged in our place. And he dies for both the accused and the accuser. And this is the incredible reality of the gospel. And this is why Paul can say, I know that it's no longer I who do it because he says, I have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But he's, what he says is, but that sin, even though it's been dealt with, I still live in a sinful body. I still live in a cosmos that has been infiltrated by sin. He's going to say in chapter 8 that all of creation groans for its redemption. That every arena of human existence has been impacted by sin. That sin brought death into the world in a very profound way. And, and I don't try to explain it that there was no death before, uh, before the fall of our first parents, but spiritual death came into being. In a, it, something happened that turned creation toward a slow decomposition. And in science, it's called the second law of thermodynamics. Everything breaks down. Everything breaks down. It's funny that uh, that evolutionary thinking actually fights against uh, the law of thermodynamics by declaring that things are improving. But we may live longer, but we're not happier. And we may, we may have more information, but we're more discombobulated and disconnected than we've ever been in our... We, we, can, we can contact... In, I just looked out. I see Lockie. I got your phone number. Why don't we talk? 
I've known you for 11 years. It's the reality of this interconnectedness actually can create an isolation. I'm going to call you this week. Um, <laughs> but at, at this, this fact that we're overloaded, we're overstimulated. We are, we are in a world of mixture, in bodies that are mixture, and sin is becoming increasingly collective by the very nature of technology. And so what Paul is pointing out here is that there is this reality. There is the Paul, new creation in Christ, but then there is still this, even though sin has been dealt with and I'm forgiven, that old man, that old woman still has this ability to rise up. And in fact, doesn't just have the ability to, is often saturated or infiltrated even the things I do in the power of the spirit. That the spirit is constantly trying to get dominance in our lives. It says that the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another. This is why it says in Galatians 5, 17, for the desires of the flesh then are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. This is why Satan's greatest tool is to play upon your inability to overcome areas of brokenness. And the way that he does that is that you find a pattern of sin in your life and then you become embarrassed because you can't seem to overcome it. But what you don't realize is that the way that one overcomes their brokenness is not by hiding it, but it's by confessing it in the safety of a community that accepts you in grace. That's why AA works. But the church too often lives more by law by a ladder theology than it does by a cross theology. That it is not the judgment of God that leads people to repentance. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance because it unhinges us when we know that even when we are at our worst, that God is continually pursuing us because he loves us. And that is something that is very difficult for us to get our heads around. And what I want you to understand is that Paul has been turning over every stone because what he is trying to show us is how to look at life through a gospel lens that is not driven by this idea um, that I've got to work hard for Jesus to accept me or by the idea that Jesus has accepted me, therefore I don't need to do anything. What he wants us to understand is that we have been born again, we're new creation, but we still live in a fallen world and fallen bodies, which means that we continue to confess our sins, not so that we can be forgiven, but so that we can actually enter into the forgiveness that's already ours. It keeps us in a place of humility. It keeps us understanding again and again that my power over sin is only found when I confess its reality in my life and claim the victory that is not something I'm working toward, but something I'm working from. And I do that in the con. That's why at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you say, my name's so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic, I haven't drank. It's fascinating, they say they're an alcoholic, but it's their confession of that that, um, that tendency toward this reality that actually continues to give them victory over it. And this is why COVID has been so brutal, where the mixture, the flesh part of our lives has actually been getting the upper hand in many, of, many in the church. Because the first thing that Satan would love for you to do is to get you out of community. There is a spiritual battle 
Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our greatest enemy is not COVID. I promise you that. Isolation, if Satan can dismantle the witness of the church and get us wrapped up in all of the infighting and the battles around, around different social and political structures, the enemy wins. And the fact is, is that the church must hold tenaciously to this tension that there is a now and not yet reality. I have been born again. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. I am enjoying heaven on the way to heaven. And yet I still see the hell that is possible in me and the hell that is around me. Jesus has not come to rescue you from the difficulties of human existence. He comes to free you from the need to be free from it so that you can enter in so that you can begin to actually be a conduit of his peace and his rest. So the first confession of Paul here, he says, listen, I'm the apostle Paul, and I'm sure the way people saw Paul as one who has arrived. And he's saying, whatever you might think, the fact is, is that if I was to share everything that ever went through my mind, none of you would listen to me. Because not even I understand my own actions. Isn't that true? I mean, how often you sit here about pastors. I was talking with Luis Palau and he talked about like one of the, his greatest struggles um, when he was younger was just uh, frustration. He was a perfectionist. So he would get, he would get angry and just, you know, he's like the, the classic like romantic, like Latin man who is like, you know, it's, it's very expressive culture, but just how that could hurt people. And just, but his thing was to quickly confess it, acknowledge it, and then move on. All of us have our things. All of us have our difficult, I have an avoidance tendency, the artistic temperament that can be, can be non-confrontational to the point where I withdraw. That's just as bad as being explosive. Uh, it may be even more damaging in some ways because it takes longer to notice it. Um, and I think that there are ways, all of us have little coping mechanisms that would feed more the flesh than it does the spirit. And the best way to overcome those things is to confess them. Now, here's the issue and the rub. I've had people leave Door of Hope because they were not comfortable with, with my confessional style preaching. Maybe they just didn't like my rabbit trails and you guys just have ADD with me and it's like, it's like it makes perfect sense to you. Um, but the, the fact is that he's like, I believe my pastor should be, be better than me. It was his exact words. And I'm like, I think I'm better than you. Um, but, you know, but that's why I'm confessing it, because that's a really horrible way to think. But I'm definitely, I'm so much better than you, buddy. I promise you. I don't, I'm, maybe define better. You know, that's not, that's, that's not what I said. I'm like, I'm like, I don't, what, what are you looking for? The, the spiritual guru who's arrived, who gives you the steps to climb? That's not what the church needs. That's not what the world needs. What the world needs is to see a radical vulnerability that continues to function in grace even in the worst days, that you're not alone in your brokenness. I hate that there's a stage here that elevates me above you. It actually, it actually, like I feel actually fights even against the very reality that Jesus was the chief servant who did not come to be served, but to serve. 
And we have to continually push against the false ideologies of the world that so quickly infiltrate the church and what you expect from the church because people are leaving the church in droves and they'll say the same thing every time. I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. But the fact is, is that is actually a demonic ideology because that is fundamentally built upon the prideful idea that you can actually live the Christian life without community, that you don't want to be under any authority, that you want to be your own God, and that is the very essence of sin. The church is not perfect, but the church isn't perfect because you aren't perfect and because I'm not perfect. And the more we confess that and recognize that life is mixture, the more we will have victory over it. Secondly, his second confession is this, and this is extremely important. I hit on this in great detail um, a couple weeks ago, that law is always seductive. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, which means what good dwells in him? Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So here he is making a distinction. The good that dwells in him is the only one who is good. Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good and that is God himself, which is his way of saying to that young rich ruler, you are not good and I am God. And I think that it's important for us to understand that what Paul is saying is that I is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ so that the life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a powerful statement. So here he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right. So here he's saying, it's not that he's not capable of doing good. He's just saying that the good that he does never actually measures up to the law that is perfect. And he says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We are so uncomfortable with the idea of limitations. It's funny. A nation that is as proud of its false idea that we are somehow free has been willing to give up more freedom in this last year than in the history of the nation. But that's a paradox all unto itself to show that we don't really understand ourselves, nor do we understand because we don't know the future and because we're so, we, we are willing to give up freedom if we think that, that, the, that the other outcome of that might be death. And I think that what, COVID showed us is an absolutely overwhelming paranoia of death. Ernst Becker's famous book, The Denial of Death, said that that is the motivation for all modern people. Um, and I think that that is very true. But I think here we have to understand, because I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I think that this is the thing is that we think about all the ways that you, that your life plays this out. Chesterton argues it really well. He says, what we need is the spirit of a child. He says, the spirit of the child is driven by this idea of repetition, that life is played out in this idea of the desire to do it again and to do it again and to do it again. But as we get older, we walk until we're tired, then we catch a cab. We, we go to the gym for a month and then we don't go. And then we'll say, we'll go again next. Well, we can't go on middle of the week. That would be weird. We got to go on a Monday. So we'll have to wait till next Monday. And then a year goes by and we'll start again. But there is, a, it, it shows the breakdown, our inability. I'm the king of that. Like I do six month workout phases, like really hardcore. And then I'm like, I hate this. I'm never doing it again. 
Um, or I just get to the place where I want to be and I'm like, yes, I have arrived. And then one month later, everything's back. Everything that I had worked for is gone and I'm right back to where I started because everything is breaking down. Everything is, is fallen in this world, including our bodies, including our minds. And I, I think about this as I get older, all the ways that I get the pangs. This is why we worship youth in our culture because we are so materialistic. Everything is driven by the senses that it makes sense that we are obsessed with that you know, that small window of that, you know, 20 to 30 range. And then it's all about trying to maintain that look for as long as possible. Like why does I cut a mullet and I just start looking weird. And then I give my son a mullet and he just looks like a rock star. Why did that happen? Cause I look like that in my twenties. I just had one of his friends text me and say, will you give me the same haircut you gave your son? And Henry goes, you can't do that. He's taken my swag. And then I, and I said, but I have the same haircut. And he goes, it's different on you. <laughs> and I was like, it's so sad. Wait till I get a perm, son. Then you'll see. <laughs> but I think that this, this obsession with maintaining this false idea of how to be happy, how to be content, how to be satisfied is actually driven by the fundamental knowing that we can't ever admit that we can't achieve what we want to achieve. There's a million things I've started that I've left unfinished. And even for the person who's hyper-focused, they still never get to all that they want to do. I think about Karl Barth, who wrote a 12 million word, you know, probably the greatest theological works of the 20th century in his church dogmatics. And he didn't even get, he didn't even get to the middle of what he had planned on writing because life is short, life is terminal. And law is seductive. So what we do to satisfy the fact that everything is breaking down, that we can't seem to accomplish what we want to accomplish, is that we begin to satisfy the religious impulse to, to silence the nagging voice of conscience. And so we begin to create rules for ourselves to satisfy the, the fact that, oh yeah, I do this every day and I do this every day and I do this every day so that we don't have to deal with the unconfessed realities of the flesh working out in, in other arenas in our lives. So you have men sitting in pews week after week, faithful, serving as elders or deacons, you know, leading their family, providing well, but deeply entrenched in pornography. You have... I mean, I can't tell you, I can only use examples that are just so common in my office. Women again and again, so obsessed with Instagram that they end up with, with deep eating disorders, which I always argue that the eating disorders of women and the pornography of men are actually intertwined. It's, it's a materialistic worldview that's driven by, this is what I think he wants and this is what I think I need. And it breaks down into this ever decreasing uh, degrees of, of, of debauchery that brings so much damage to the heart. And when we create law to hide those realities, it shows how seductive it is. That's why I say the most dangerous place to be in the world is not in a tent out there shooting up methamphetamine. I think the most dangerous place is to be in the pew, unregenerate, listening to messages week after week, doing all of your religious activities without ever actually knowing Jesus. That's the most terrifying possibility from, from my perspective as a pastor. And it's far more easy to be deceived in the church than it is out there in the world. Because when you're out there, you know exactly 
The greatest enemies of the church is not those people out there. It's us in here, which is why we must practice a radical confession because life is mixture. And this is how God brings grace out of graceless moments. Finally, in his third confession, he says, he says this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That's the law that Paul is dealing with. It's the law of human existence. And he says, for I delight in the law of God. He deeply, most of us know that feeling as Christians. I want to do what's right. I want to be the man that's consistent. I want to be the woman that loves Jesus and gets up every morning to, to spend time with him in the word. I want to be the person that's gracious and believes the best about people around me. But why is it that I'm all of a sudden, I went from being preaching a grace-filled sermon to then being sh short and, and, and snarky with my family because I'm tired from serving people at church. It shows the breakdown. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, what a beautiful confession. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice, here's the shift, and here's the answer. And it's in this one sentence. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not found in the sentence that follows. He's actually going back to the problem afterwards. The answer is all wrapped up in the gospel. It's all wrapped up in the person of Jesus. The, the, the Christian life is not an ideology, a set of rules that we follow, but it is someone to know, someone to know intimately. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit for without me, you can do nothing. And this is why he goes on to say, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, which is another way of saying, I can only serve it with my mind. I get it. I understand its truth. I understand its importance. I see its perfection. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So he's not saying, because of Jesus, now I can serve, I can serve God with my mind. That's not what he's saying. Because he's, he's already told us the law actually brings condemnation because of its perfection. It isn't driven by mercy. It's driven by law. It's immovable. It's a blind judge. It judges evenly. It doesn't care what your, what your social background is or your, or, your, or your ethnicity. It doesn't care what country you come from. The law is the law. These are immovable facts. It's a standard that is written into the fabric of existence because God is the creator and all things reflect his holy perfection. But his perfection written into the fabric of a world that has become imperfect only can remind us of how short we come up. And this is why he says the only thing that can rescue us from this place of despair. And I don't know about you guys, but I read the news yesterday and I'm like three shootings, a woman on 39th and Hawthorne, 67 years old was pushed into Hawthorne by a man having a psychotic break because of methamphetamines and then he continued to kick her breaking multiple ribs breaking her collarbone and her wrist and then lit the telephone pole on fire and then took four police officers to contain him he bit two of them uh, and was arrested and then I'm like shooting here 
a pastor that I know, John Hennessy, lost his son in a food cart, shot, shot dead on Wednesday. Uh, we at Door of Hope are um, be talking with the elders today to see if we could possibly help uh, with the funeral costs. Uh, this, this pastor does not have uh, the funds to take care of this due to just the shrinking church during COVID. I mean, so many things are just like the mayor asking so desperate for helping bring the integrity and respect back to Portland. And now they're coming to the church and saying, will you guys clean up the garbage in Portland? And I'm like... Yes, I said yes for all of you. You would love to do that. Um, we are going to we're going to be doing something this summer to working with a bunch of churches. I'm talking with Gerald at Bridgetown and uh, Mark Estes at City Bible, and and they're so desperate they're turning to the church. That's good news for us. In a in a city where the neighbors are mad that we're gathering, well, they can't be mad if we clean the garbage up in their neighborhood. And I think that this is the thing that we need to understand is that the only thing that can keep us from despair is to remind us that the despair around us is the very reason that Jesus keeps us here. He doesn't come to rescue you from difficulty. He comes to utilize you in the midst of it. And that is where the peace is. That is where the meaningfulness of existence is found. It's not going inward into self-discovery It is moving outward into a broken world, looking at it through the eyes of Christ rather than through the eyes of culture. It is not seeing a us versus them mentality, but it is seeing a Jesus for them mentality, that we exist for the good of those that would burn us down. And let me tell you, the greatest enemy of the church will continue to be the church itself. And the power of the church is going to be wrapped up in its ability to recognize that the only thing that can rescue us from the mixture that is continually at play is that we continually confess our brokenness to a God and to one another so that the spirit can have dominance in our lives because sin by its nature is refusing the spirit dominance because Jesus is Lord is the essence of salvation. And so here we have it. Wretched person that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, he already told us the good news. It's Jesus. And he's going to show us in chapter 8 the beauty of what it means to be spirit-filled. we got to get through these difficult passages because too many times Christians walk away from their faith because it's what Chesterton said. Christianity isn't tried and found wanting. It's found difficult and not tried. And I think that this is an important aspect for us is that when Christians are fed all of this kind of sort of shallow, meaningless, your best self now kind of ideologies. It's not surprising that when life gets really hard, people peace out. But I think if we understand that it will cost us everything to follow him, but it's actually the thing that brings joy and hope and meaning when you can actually be a conduit of grace in someone who is deeply broken, it not only brings healing to them, but it brings healing to yourself. And this is the key to the victorious Christian life. It's sanctification. It's not, I'm saved by grace, therefore I'm gonna keep just doing all the things that I did before I was saved, because you'll have no pleasure in any of that. That's the one bummer about being saved. Sin isn't as fun as it was before you were saved. But now, in Christ, My freedom, it's not the freedom to do what I want, but it is now the freedom and the power to do what is right as I surrender myself 
to my king, that God will work through us in spite of the mixture. And this is what it means to be both mortal and eternally alive. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel, for its ability to bring transformation to our lives. We need you, Lord. We long for you in your presence, and we praise you for your love. As we worship you in spirit and in truth, as we remember you through the sacraments, for you said on the night of your betrayal, you took a loaf of bread and you said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, you took the cup and you said, this is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Drink this in remembrance of me. That every time we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, every time we gather around your word and gather together as your people, we are reminded that you are present. For you said, when two or more are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. We need you. We need your spirit. We need one another. Thank you, Father, for sending your son. May your love fill this place. We praise you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.